Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Well, morning, everybody. Morning. So many, maybe you, maybe you didn't, maybe you did. Uh, you saw on Facebook or Instagram that we are starting a new series today. For the next several weeks, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. We'll be studying this book together uh, and discovering what it means for you personally to be engaged in the mission of God. That's the vision of this church. Our vision is seeing you empowered by the Holy Spirit and using your spiritual gifts, right? The vision is not a big audience for the people on the stage. Uh, that's, it's a more greatly empowered and released you. So we are going to talk about that by looking at this interesting book of Jonah. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read it in a while, read it this week. It's only about four chapters. It's very quick to read. It feels like it ends a little abruptly, but it's an amazing read, amazing book. If people know anything about Jonah, uh, they know it has got something to do with Jonah telling God no about going to Nineveh and then being swallowed up by a fish, then like lighting a candle inside the fish and getting vomited up on the land, getting to live the rest of his life as a real boy. Uh, it's, I'm kind of mixing up Pinocchio and Jonah there, but a lot of people get hung up and they say, this can't be true. How's this even, how's this even possible? Right? Staying alive in a fish for three days, that's got to be like a myth, all right? Myth or something. I would remind you, this is not a story about a big magical fish. It's a story about God. Uh, and honestly, I wouldn't even put this in my top 10 hardest things to believe in the Bible list, right? In Genesis 1, God spoke the worlds into existence with a word. So why would you pick this out and say, well, that, that's impossible, right? If God created the galaxies with a word, he can, he can pull off stuff like this. If you believe in a God who spoke everything into existence by the word of his mouth, you believe in the supernatural. There's no way to escape that unless you want to get rid of just altogether the idea of God, a God who works on the earth. Some people say, well, maybe it's supposed to be read as a parable. And the problem is that it's just not written that way. Uh, the names, the dates, the details, it's written as history, it says, Jonah, the son of Amittai. It doesn't say once upon a time there was a guy named Jonah. Plus, the, the book of 2 Kings tells us about some of the other stuff Jonah, the son of Amittai, did. Uh, the other thing that Jesus, is that Jesus thought of the story as actual history. He referred to the historical events as a very important prophetic sign for his own ministry. Uh, Matthew 12 and Luke 11 say that, and I, I feel like he would know. Um, so, so let's dive into Jonah. Okay, no pun intended. I, I kind of intended that pun. Huh? So there, who was this guy, Jonah? The book of 2 Kings tells us that Jonah was one of Israel's premier prophets. He, was a, uh, he had a very successful ministry during one of Israel's finest hours. He was like the, the Billy Graham of Israel. And God comes to Jonah in Jonah 1, 1 and 2. If you want to go there. It says, he tells Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh. And preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So two things about Nineveh. First, it was a huge city. All right, Jonah says it, it took three days to walk from one side to the other. Historians tell us that the walls of Nineveh were wide enough that you could ride three chariots across the top of them. Huge city with huge, big architecture, big culture. Second, the Ninevites were known as some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. Uh, Nineveh boasted in their own histories about how cruel they were. So when they would conquer another city, they would skin alive a bunch of their people, and they would spread out their skins on the city walls. 
Then they would bury these, these skinned people while they were still alive up to their heads in sand. So they would just languish in pain until they died of shock or thirst. And at night, they would make them listen to Nickelback over and over and over. <laughs> I made that last part up, but they were brutal. And when they were going to attack a city, it was said that sometimes a whole, a whole town of people would just commit suicide before they got there. Because they would rather die than experience what was coming. So if they conquered a city, they would behead all the people. That was kind of their thing. Men, women, children. They would make this mountain of heads outside the city so, that, so as to say, this is what happens to people who oppose us. These were the people that Jonah was asked to go and preach to. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that one of Nineveh's primary targets was their neighbors to the south Israel, which means Jonah and people he knew were victims of Ninevite cruelty. And so Jonah doesn't want to do it. In chapter 3, Jonah says the reason he didn't want to go preach and prophesy to them is not because he was scared. It was because he was afraid that they would repent and God would forgive them. Jonah had a great deal of personal bitterness against these people. And God's telling Jonah, go to the meanest, biggest, baddest, most powerful city in the world, go to the center of it, and tell them to turn to God. And he wasn't really afraid of going and failing. He was afraid of success. He was afraid they might repent. He wanted those Ninevites destroyed. At the root of Jonah's disobedience is self-righteousness. The Bible says, if we don't accept the freely given gift of righteousness from our Father in heaven, that every human will go about trying to patch together a righteousness of their own. And the more people we feel better than, the better we feel about ourselves. So that's what self-righteousness is. Jonah's particular form of self-righteousness in his case was racism. It's a very typical way to feel better than everybody else. But that's not the only way to be self-righteous, right? You can turn your enlightenment into self-righteousness. You can turn uh, religion into self-righteousness. Possibly that was also part of Jonah's trouble. We're religious, so we look down at our nose at all the people who are immoral, and that makes us feel better than other people. Humans have this great ability to take any particular thing and make it a way to feel superior to other people. And that's what Jonah does. And the point is that Jonah couldn't call people to repent. He couldn't preach about the grace because he was a stranger to it himself. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So here begins Jonah's rebellion against God. God clearly told him, go to Nineveh, and he ran the other way. And not a little, little ways, right? Tarshish was about 1,600 miles from Nineveh. So here's what we learn. That there are a lot of godly people who look like they're walking with God in every other way, but there's some area that they're saying no to him in. Right? For Jonah, that rebellion was very visible. He got on a ship and sailed away. For a lot of us, that rebellion isn't. So maybe you feel like God is calling you to do something, right? Kick some bad habits. Maybe there's a sacrifice God has put on your heart to make or there's a sin you need to confess, but you've been saying no. And you've been fleeing from God in your heart. Jonah's a very simple story. It's a book about a man running from God and about God pursuing him. And as a result of that, that the book of Jonah is one of the clearest ways to learn what the Bible means when it talks about sin and grace. Sin is running away from God, and grace is God's effort to pursue and intercept self-destructive behavior. That's it, running and chasing, sin and grace. Second thing I see in this verse is he found a ship ready. 
right? Have you ever noticed that people assume that the readiness of the ship is like God's okay of a plan, on a plan of action, right? Let me tell you something. If you want to run from God, there will always be a ship ready to Tarshish. You have an enemy whose whole role is to ready our ship for your disobedience. If you want out of your marriage, there will always be a relationship that presents itself. If you tolerate greed in your life, there will always be a great deal on something to buy or a way to cheat to get ahead. Or how about, you know, saying, well, I had peace in my heart about it. Like peace in your heart is God's okay in a situation. One of Satan's primary roles is to give you peace about doing the wrong thing. In Genesis 3, at the first temptation, he assured the woman, it's okay, the the forbidden tree is good, good for food. It'll make you wise, you won't die. He gave her peace about disobeying God. Don't look to peace in your heart as a guide for your life. Right? Look to God's word. Peace in your heart can change based on what kind of mood you're in sometimes. God's word never changes. Let's go to verse 4 and 5. It says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the saviors were sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So God sends a storm. So what's the significance of the storm? The storm gives you really gives us the good and the bad news about what it means to live in God's world, okay? So first, the bad news. Whenever you sin, whenever you disobey God, there's a storm cloud that is attached, and it will catch up to you. Disobedience doesn't usually immediately have a bad effect. Sin is more like a dose of radioactivity than it is a bullet. You understand what I mean? There's There's different kinds of ways to kill somebody. You can shoot somebody, you can stab them, or you can just open a can of some kind of radioactive material. When you get in the presence of some lethal dose of radioactivity, you don't immediately go, ow. It doesn't do it like that. You don't feel a thing, but your insides start to decay. Sin does the same thing. Initially, sexual immorality feels good, but it masters you and you lose joy. Initially, sitting around and harboring resentful thoughts plotting and thinking and fantasizing about the demise that somebody feels good, but eventually you end up in a prison of bitterness. Sin has always got a storm cloud attached to it, and you can't outrun it. You can't get away from it. It's there. That's the bad news. You want to, you want to know what the good news is? This. In the middle of the storm, God sends a big fish. The storm God has sent is a storm that's sent to redeem Jonah. God, unlike the forces of darkness, wants you to see who you really are. God wants you to wake up to your true condition, and he does it out of love. In the middle of the storm, there are loving intentions. When Jonah stops fleeing from the storm and throws himself into the middle of it, which is his way of trusting God, by hurling himself into the middle of it, he's saved because there's love under the waves. This is what Josh was talking about. There's provision under the waves. The storm that's in your life has God's loving intention in the middle of it. You know what grace is? Let me give you an example. Imagine right now somebody you you love very much. Imagine that that person is very sick. Okay, and the only way that he can stay alive is if he takes his medication. So he has to take his medicine or he'll die. But in his bad condition, he's become deluded and he thinks that the medicine you're trying to give him is poison. So every time you go to give him his medicine, 
He fights you, tries to hurt you, tries to kill you, runs from you. What do you do? If you stay away, that shows you hate him, right? So you go after him. You may have to tackle him. You may have to punch him in the mouth in order to knock him out so he doesn't kill you so you can help him. But you see what grace there is even in that violence. Gentle power. That's what, kind of, what's what grace is. Grace is always kind, but it isn't always safe or painless. Grace is pursuing and intercepting self-destructive behavior. The grace of God is a fierce, determined love. Okay, so here's the situation. All these pagan sailors, scared out of their minds, are like, we're all going to die. So everybody pray to your God, and hopefully one of them will be in a good mood, and then we'll be okay. So they pull out their crystals and their amulets, and they hurled the cargo that was on the, sh- on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. And then still in verse 5, it says, But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So they're up there having all these theological discussions, and the prophet of God is downstairs asleep. Now, the word sleep in Hebrew is the word used for deep sleep, not like dozing. It's the word that's used for what God did to Adam in order to take a rib from him. Something has happened to Jonah here that has put him in this deep sleep. Jonah isn't just experiencing like a distress or discouragement, even what you might call some sort of like normal depression. He is experiencing existential despair, a deep identity implosion. Jonah was a successful person, a leader, great prophet. In his running from God, God has broken that identity that he had for himself. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis talks about those who are running from God and he describes them as being see-through. They have less and less substance, but those who run toward God become more solid. They take on bright colors. Those running from God become less human. When we run from God... We become more like, when we, I'm sorry, when we run toward God, we become more like what God intended us to be, more alive, more human. Jonah is running from God and having this identity crisis. Six, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and, and it fell on, surprise, Jonah. Right? They spin the roulette wheel, and every time, God stops at the ball on Jonah. Verse 8. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so, which I think is kind of funny. Right. When he got on the boat, they were like, are you traveling for business or pleasure? And John was like, uh, what does fleeing from God count as? Because right? that's what I'm doing. Right? So, so a couple of things here. First, our disobedience affects others. One of the most intriguing verses in the entire book is this, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. If you think about it, This heathen captain comes down and yells at Jonah, this godly man. What he's saying is, listen, I understand you're religious. What are you doing down here asleep? Absorbed in your own problems. Having your little identity crisis. 
not even realizing what kind of situation we're in. If you have a God, why aren't you getting your faith out where it can do some good? Why don't you do something for us? Your little pity party is going to get us killed. Don't you see we're dying? No, this is so great. This heathen captain is rebuking Jonah for being a man of God who has no idea about the problems of the people surrounding him. Too absorbed in his own worries. He's probably asleep because he's full of his own grief. He's full of his own self-doubt, full of his own guilt. Right? You know what happens. When you're so wrapped up in your own problems, you turn inward on yourself. He's being rebuked because he's so distant from the problems of the people around him. He doesn't even know their predicament. Let's be very honest with ourselves. Right? Many of us, like Jonah, are too personally wrapped up in our own problems. In our own hurts and our own pains. We look around and we see the problems around us and we say, yeah, I'm too messed up for, for that. I'm too messed up myself. I have, to, I have too many of my own problems. We're asleep below deck. And the world comes to us and says, hey, sleeper, get up. If you have a God, why aren't you doing something for us? Here we are completely absorbed in our problems. Meanwhile, families are breaking apart. People have no purpose, no community. There's dysfunction in relationships. People live in poverty and hopelessness. And meanwhile, we're asleep below deck because of our own self-image problems. We're asleep below deck because we, of our own hurts. And I, and I definitely have to qualify that by saying there's a balance there, right? If you are a mess yourself, you aren't going to help anybody. But I think that a lot of times, strength follows activity. Do you understand what I mean? It says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for, then, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out, because God is working. As you do the work, as you do the service, then the strength comes. You know this if you ever tried to help somebody who's been sick for a while, right? At a certain point, you say, you have to get up. Well, I'm too tired to get up. Well, you're too tired to get up because you're not getting up, right? Those of you who work in the healthcare know what, that this happens. At a certain point, you have to say, until you get up and start to, to make yourself feel like you're going beyond your capacity, you'll never get beyond your capacity. Strength follows the stepping out. The reason Jonah is self-absorbed and self-righteous is because Jonah believes he's better than these pagans. And as, for, as, a, as a result, he doesn't care for them. He's all wrapped up in his own problems, so he can't see the people that are in, in trouble around him. He has forgotten he's a sinner saved by grace. That's the reason why the Bible can, can tell us in Isaiah and Matthew and James here that the way you can tell if you're, you have faith is by the way in which you treat those who are different. Than you. Chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder before than before. So, Kudos to these pagan sailors. They don't want Jonah to die. But now they're in a rowing contest against God. And it's not going very well. Verse 14, then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us, do not let us die for taking this man's life. 
Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. So you get kind of a funny word picture here, because in the next couple of verses that a, that a fish gulped him up. But that was after the sea ceased from raging. So Jonah hits the water. Water turns calm. Jonah's like, well, that worked. I guess I can get back in, right? Haul me up, fellas. And just then, whoop, fish grabs him. Which we'll see in next week's story. But that's the question for you. Are you willing to obey God if it costs you Right? Verse 3 gives us a very important insight. It says, Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. Presence is the Hebrew word penim, which means face. Jonah knew he couldn't get away from God, right? That's the most basic theological lesson that, that God is everywhere. He wanted to be away from the face of God, the personal relationship with God. Ideally, he wanted to obey God and have a personal relationship with him, but when the sense of self-righteousness and self-focus went one way, and the face of God went the other, he chose to stay with what he loved most. In Daniel 3, three Hebrew boys found themselves in a dilemma, right? If they obeyed God, they would be cast into a fiery furnace. If they denied God, they would live. Here's a question. Would you rather be in the flames with God or in safety without him? That's the question you have to ask. Would you rather have the joy of the face of God even if it means obeying God in very difficult situations, or have the benefits of disobedience without God. Jewish folks gather each year on Yom Kippur in the synagogue, and every year they read Jonah. And they all respond in unison at the conclusion, we are Jonah. They confront themselves with their own self-centeredness, their own self-righteousness, and they question whether they'll follow God or follow something else, and they commit to following God every year. Something else we see here is the contrast being set up between how Jonah feels about the Ninevites and how God feels about them. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. God wants to see them forgiven. Jonah's actually giving you a picture of who the real Savior is who would come for the Ninevites. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that he was a prophet like Jonah. He said that his death and resurrection were a fulfillment of the sign given through Jonah. Jonah was, he was cast out onto the sea, and the sea became calm. He was swallowed by a fish, taken down into the depths of the ocean. Then three days later, he was brought back to the land of the living. Jesus was cast out onto the ocean of God's wrath at the cross. And the great storm of wrath against our sin became calm. He was in the heart of the earth for three days like Jonah and then resurrected. The difference was that Jonah went through all of that involuntarily because of his disobedience. Jesus went through it all voluntarily because of our disobedience. Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran toward them. Jonah was on a mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on a mission of rescue because he loved them. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus poured himself out in self-sacrifice. What God wants is for his people to have a heart that overflows with compassion. And the only way to break off self-righteousness and self-absorption and to develop compassion is through a deep experience of God's grace in your life. 
Jonah faced the same question that we all face today. And, it, and it's, it's a simple question, but it's not an easy question. Obey or disobey? When God speaks to you, you can always find a ship sailing in the wrong direction. And if you do not obey, he may send a storm to grab your attention. And when he does, understand, understand this. It's all because he loves you. Because he has something for you to do. And he has a city or a group of people for you to impact. And you've got a choice. You can keep running or you can come back to him. And maybe today some of you would recognize the fact that you've been on the run. And you realize that it's time for me to come, to come back. It's time for me to repent. And maybe your prayer is today, God, renew that joy of my salvation. God, accept me back. Forgive me for my disobedience. I'm coming back to you. The Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a, there's a way that seems right, but it doesn't lead anywhere. It's because if you're running toward anything but God, you're running from God. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story. He says there was a father who had these two sons. You know the story. One of them said, Dad, I don't want to do it your way. Give me my stuff. I'm going out on my own. And he did. And at some point he woke up and he realized this is not working. Right? It seemed right. It's not working. And he wondered, would my father have me back? And what he didn't realize is that the father was waiting and hoping and praying for him to come back. Jesus doesn't hold grudges. He celebrates when you take that step back to him. And it doesn't matter how far you've walked away. It's always only one step back. So if you want to come back to him today, what I want to do is, I want to make these next few moments, just make them a holy moment for us, okay? And I'm not going to give you words to say, um, but we're just going to have a bit of a quiet time for a little bit. So if that's you, that you can pray. Pray sincerely. Make your seats a holy altar before God and come back to him in your own words. Tell him you're coming back and then just pray, okay? And then I'll pray for us after that. Amen. Now let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the storms that are sent out of love, Lord. On the cross, you paid for our sins. Because of that, we can turn to you and now know that beneath the waves, there's something to hold us up. Beneath the waves, there's love. So, Father, now we ask that you would enable us to, to see the only refuge from you is in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If the ministry team wants to come forward, if, um, if you'd like prayer for any reason, if you've taking that step back towards Jesus today and would like some prayer, this, this would be a great time to get prayed for. Amen. Free to go.